Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I want to talk about another one of the major themes that kind of runs through Tolkien's works, and this is one that he explicitly talks about in some of his letters. Uh, and if you haven't read his letters, you can get a copy at the link in the description below. But the theme that I want to talk about here is the theme of death. I mean, Tolkien explicitly says in several letters that that's one of the main themes in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion. And I want to talk about how that kind of, how he plays that up in his works and just some of the, the ways in which it affects different parts of the story. So without any further ado, let's get going. Of course, the jumping off point for any discussion about the theme of death in The Lord of the Rings or The Silmarillion is the fact that, of course, the two main races are elves who are immortal and men who are mortal. Of course, you've got dwarves and hobbits, but they're a little more like side characters compared to, you know, men and elves. Hobbits, of course, are main characters in The Lord of the Rings, but even then, Tolkien in one of his letters says... You know, hobbits are kind of like just a variation of men. They're not they're not really different in, in any meaningful sense. They're just kind of like a... He doesn't go so far as to call them a subspecies, but he all but says that. And dwarves, dwarves are kind of their own thing because, as I pointed out in a video that I've done previously on another theme in Lord of the Rings, sub-creation, I'll link to that video below, dwarves are actually not the product of Eru Iluvatar, the god of the universe, they were the kind of the brainchild of one of the Valar, Aule, who is kind of the smith god equivalent in the Silmarillion cosmology. So they're kind of, they're not really that relevant to this discussion. The main ideas are fleshed out in terms of elves and men. And of course the starting point being one is immortal, the other is mortal, but Tolkien doesn't go the obvious route with this. The obvious route is you know, one of them just lives forever, and that's cool. The other one doesn't live forever, and that's, man, who wants to die? Uh, it's not quite that simple in Tolkien's world, and it's also not quite that simple because the immortality the elves enjoy is a little bit unusual for, you know, any kind of mythology about immortal creatures. So, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of mythological creatures that enjoy immortality. So, for example, vampires. They live forever. At least that's the usual mythology behind them. But if you can manage to kill them, which is really hard to do and very rarely happens, they really are dead. They stay dead. You know, they may end up in hell, depending on which version of the mythology you go by, but they're not they're no longer living on this plane of existence. Whereas for elves, the interesting thing is if they die, what really happens is their spirit leaves their bodies, goes back to the halls of Mondos, Mondos being one of the other Valar, who is kind of the Hades slash Pluto character in the, the Silmarillion cosmology, except less nasty. <laughs> um, and they wait there until they're reincarnated. So, I mean, they never really die in, in the true sense that they lose consciousness. They just kind of leave their body, and then they eventually get reincarnated, usually into a later-born elf, often their own descendant. And that's, you know, that's how they continue on their lives. I mean, they literally, the way that Tolkien puts it basically is their lives are coextensive co with the life of Arda, the world of Middle-earth. And we don't know when that ends. We don't know what happens to them after that. The elves just know that as long as Arda is around, they're around, either in the body that they are originally born into or waiting in the halls of Mondos to go into a new body or in a new body. That's... 
You know, that's what we know about elves. Men, we know very little about. And the reason for that is the Silmarillion is mostly, which is where we get most of our information about any of this, is written from the perspective of elves who don't know. They just don't know what happens to men. Um, they do point out that, that, well, I mean, they don't even know why men are mortal. They're not even sure that they were always mortal. There's some kind of hint that maybe there was some kind of a, a fall type event, you know, Adam and Eve type fall where the men, the race of men lost their immortality. They're not really sure. There's a kind of hint at that, that the fact that the first time men show up, they've already encountered in some form or other Morgoth or his creatures and that in some way has tainted their past, but the men never tell the elves what happened or any of that. So being told from the perspective of elves, the Silmarillion is kind of agnostic on the issue of what happens to men when they die. So we really don't have a clear answer for that. Now, of course, one could surmise because Tolkien is Catholic and a lot of this is written with a very Catholic worldview in mind that his ultimate view is men probably were originally immortal but lost that because of the fall and whenever they die they have a higher destiny beyond this world that has to do with a new world that will eventually be created. I mean that's kind of the the usual Christian worldview. So you could surmise that but it's really not clear and it's at best vaguely hinted at. So that's kind of like a backdrop of what we kind of know and don't know about elvish immortality and mannish mortality. So now let's kind of look at how that theme plays out in some of the major stories and, and whatnot in Tolkien's writings. So as I mentioned earlier, Tolkien doesn't go the obvious route of, oh, living forever is great, we want to live forever. He does, of course, play that up when it comes to the perspective of humans, because humans want to live forever. Being mortal and of course not recognizing how that plays into their ultimate destiny all the time, they want to live forever and exceed the boundaries that have been set for them, which is kind of what all people ultimately want to do. The flip side of that is elves don't always want to live forever. Eventually living forever, especially in Middle-earth as opposed to uh, Valinor, where the Valar and the other elves that have never even been back to Middle-earth live, you know, living in Middle-earth just becomes kind of tiresome for them. They literally just start to grow weary of being in the world. And so that's that kind of plays into the idea of elves are coexistent with the world. It's like he doesn't really explain what happens or what will happen to elves when the world ends, however that happens, because he doesn't explain that either. But you do very much get the distinct idea that when the world ends, that's kind of the end of elves too. You don't really know why, you don't really get a clear explanation of it, but that's the idea that keeps getting hinted at. And in some cases explicitly stated, you know, elves are coexistent, coextensive, their lives are coextensive with that of the world. So we kind of know that, but and that's why elves basically just they kind of wear out. They, they get tired of living in the world. And that's you know, he even goes so far as to say that elves who stay in Middle Earth especially eventually just kind of fade. And you get the idea even that he's hinting at, you know, they, they diminish to the point where they are kind of like the elves that we think of from other, you know, folk tales and whatever. They're much smaller creatures that can kind of disappear at whim, you know, that sort of thing. They're not meant to inhabit Middle Earth because it's not really 
their part of the world. They're more, their, their immortality is better suited to Valinor, and that's where they really ought to be. So it's really interesting how that plays off. The, the human tendency to want to live forever. So you've got both of those things in contrast. Each wants what the other has. Neither recognizes that what they do have is a gift in its own right. So the elves, of course, being immortal, can continue to learn, continue to, you know, develop themselves. They can they can improve themselves essentially forever. But the interesting side note to that is because they have all the time in the world, they tend to be kind of lazy about doing things. They just want to preserve what they have, and they don't want to be active players in the world. So you've got, you know, the three elven rings that come up in the Lord of the Rings. Their main purpose was essentially to create many realms where you can have something like what they know was in Valinor, that, you know, it's it's essentially perfect, nothing dies there, You, it's kind of timeless and ethereal. That's what Lothlorien is, that's what uh, Rivendell is. The third Elven Ring, of course, ends up in the hands of Gandalf, so it doesn't stay at any one place, and he doesn't use it in that way. But that's essentially what motivates that kind of thing is the fact that the elves don't want things to change. They just kind of want to have a static because to the extent that time passes, they grow weary and they don't want, you know, they're, they're trying to avoid that as much as possible. And that's why all elves eventually do either leave middle earth or they just kind of fade and diminish. So you've got this really interesting dichotomy of each side wanting what the other has and neither can get it. So, you know, elves, they end up being reborn into the world and they're just going to continue to grow weary. Men die wanting to live forever because they want to achieve more. Men, of course, being the ones who don't have time, do try to achieve a lot with the time that they have. And that's why, oddly enough, even though the Silmarillion is written from an elvish perspective, most of the major heroes are human. Turin Turambar is human. Baron is human. I mean, you've, you've got all these people who are human, who are the major heroes in the stories. You have some heroes among the elves who do some incredible things, but they're not, they're not driven by, you know, I want to achieve this goal and I have to do it quickly. You know, it, it's never that. The, the main feats that are achieved by elves are just kind of, you know, they're either doing their thing or, you know, in, in one case, so for example, the king, one of the high kings in the Noldor and the Silmarillion who fights Morgoth, uh, the king Fingolfin, he fights Morgoth basically out of a, just desperation and revenge motive. So, I mean, you don't have a lot of elves who are really accomplishing major feats in, in the same way that humans do. It, I mean, you have them doing important things, but it's not for the same types of reasons. And it's really interesting to see that contrast. Now let's talk about how that really plays out in the stories and the plot lines, more specifically. So I mentioned, of course, that the human characters in the Silmarillion tend to be the ones who really do big things. You've got Turin Turambar, who is constantly, like, you, he's an interesting character because he's constantly driven to achieve things, and especially achieve things like killing orcs and other servants of Morgoth because he kind of wants to get revenge on them for the, the havoc that they've wreaked on his life and his family. So you get a lot of stuff in, in his story, but really the more prominent version is Baron in the Baron and Luthien story because his entire goal is he wants he wants the hand of Luthien in marriage, and he's only going to get that by getting the Silmaril from Morgoth. And so you, 
you know, he sets out on this quest. He doesn't have forever. He can't sit there and plan it forever. So he immediately sets out, tries to get his thing done. You know, he's working on that the entire time. I mean, he doesn't have time to waste. He's already probably middle-aged by the time the story starts. So you can see that playing out. Whereas in the backdrop of the Silmarillion story, of course, you have the overall war of the elves against Morgoth and the elves essentially at the beginning just kind of lay siege to Morgoth's realm. They can't penetrate it, so they just kind of sit there. And then they just sit there. And they sit there. And they sit there. And it they never really do much because they're like, well, we're not going to die. Let's just kind of sit out here and we'll wait until a good opportunity arises. And of course, that ends up being their downfall because eventually Morgoth just builds up his, his own army and breaks out and destroys the elven kingdoms and that kind of ends up ruining the entirety of everything that they've set up. So, I mean, they, they, they lose just by sheer weight of their own lack of impetus. So, I mean, if they had really pushed it and they had really gone for the win immediately, they might have accomplished something, but because they just kind of sat there forever and never really, you know, made any moves on their own, Morgoth eventually overcomes them. More interestingly, this comes up a lot later. The, the theme of the, the, on the human side, the fear of death comes up a lot later because it's how Morgoth and Sauron play humans and corrupt them. So, of course, the Numenor mythology, which I've talked about before, the, the kings of Numenor eventually capture Sauron because he essentially lets them, and he's doing that because he knows he can corrupt them. And he does that by, again, playing on this fear of death. He basically tells the king of Numenor, well, you know, the, the Valar are telling you that you can't go to the Undying Lands. In fact, you can. You just have to take it from them. And they're trying to hide from you the, the real power out, out, out there called Morgoth, and he can give you eternal life, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, he basically plays on the idea that they want eternal life, and that's how he corrupts them to end up serving his own purposes, which is to make war on the Valar and have the entire island of Numenor sink. So, I mean, that, that theme, of course, kind of determines a lot of history just by itself. And then you also get other problems coming along later with similar similar issues like Denethor. It's not as strong and obvious in his own story how that plays out, but it is kind of there because when he dies, he's not he, he chooses to to kill himself, which is interesting because it's kind of the flip side. But he's doing it out of despair. He doesn't want to be killed. He would rather kill himself, and he would he wants to do it with Faramir. So that he can, they can both just die together, and it's it's an interesting kind of flip side, but it's still that same kind of corruption that I want to be the one in control of my own death. And Gandalf points out, it's not for you to decide who dies and when. That's not your decision. Uh, so even though he's not using the usual choice, which is I want to live forever, he still is trying to be the master of his own fate and when he dies. So that, that still kind of plays in there. The flip side of that for humans is the best of, of humankind, at least among the kings of Numenor and the ones who are really long-lived. You don't see this in any of the other characters, but you get the idea that maybe it applies to more than just the kings. 
is whenever they reach a certain age, which is kind of like their natural limit, they can kind of voluntarily just give up living. Not It's not suicide. It's just, it's my time to go and I'm not going to fight it. And the idea is the ones that do fight it tend to just become senile and lose their minds. They become, yeah, he never really describes it in detail, so I can't really say that it fits one particular psychopathology over another, but the idea is the humans who try to live beyond kind of their natural bounds don't they they don't succeed ultimately for very long because they're going to die anyway but to the extent that they do succeed they only extend their life a little bit and the life that they have after that is not worth living so the ones who are good like Aragorn and you know there's other examples in history too but they will like in if you actually read the appendices this is what happens Aragorn eventually just decides it's my time to die. I'm going to just, you know, give up living. It's it's that time. And Arwen, of course, doesn't want him to, which is another interesting flip side, because Arwen being an elf, you would think, you know, she's kind of looking for the escape of death in some senses, but because she loves Aragorn, she doesn't want him to die. And that kind of ends up being a little bit of a conflict. You could find that in the appendices at the very end of uh, the story of Arwen and Aragorn. And it's interesting because you get that, again, that conflict of wanting to live forever or, or not. And then of course, after Aragorn dies, Arwen is so heartbroken that she eventually dies just of heartbreak. What that means for her ultimately, we don't know. I mean, we'll, she'll probably go to the halls of Mondos and because at that point, well, I say that I'm not really a hundred percent sure. I can't remember if the souls of men go to Mondos or if they go to a separate place. I want to say they all go to Mondos, but in separate, like distinct parts of his halls. But I, I really don't remember, but that's what, you know, once she's decided to become, um, you know, choose the path of humanness, that's, that's her destiny. She's not going to become, you know, she's not going to go to where the elves go because she's essentially cho chosen the human half of her nature. So, there's a lot of different ways that this plays out in different plot lines, and there's probably more out there that I'm leaving out, but those are some of the major ones that really play into the idea of why death is important, why elves would, you know, in some sense prefer to die just to escape the monotony of living. And it, oh, that's another one, too, that, you know, Gandalf points out that somebody who possesses the ring of power for too long they end up having that same kind of effect. They they live forever, but it's not like they gain. He does the way he puts it is they don't gain more life. They just continue, you know. It, it, and eventually it becomes just an agony to keep living, but you can't give it up either. So I mean, there's there's an interesting little twist. It doesn't have anything to do per se with elves versus men. It's a different thing, but it's a similar idea to elves. You know, they just keep living and they don't want to. They're just like, oh, I'm so tired of being here. <laughs> But that's that's more or less the theme of death, how it kind of plays into a lot of Tolkien's writings. Let me know in the comments if you think that I missed any major plot lines that deal with death. I think I've hit the big ones, but uh, if you can think of some other ones, we can talk about those in the comments. So I hope you enjoyed that video. hope you learned a little bit more and gained a little insight into how to read The Silmarillion and The Lord of the Rings, kind of in using that theme of death. You, when you know it's there. It's a little easier to spot where Tolkien really puts it into the stories and, and how he uses it. But it's not one that's really obvious that just leaps off the page at you unless you kind of know to look for it. 
So anyway, like I said, if you, if you enjoy the video, please give it a like. Please also subscribe to the channel, or you can follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore. And until next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadie.